0: You know, in this time of the season, uh, Mary, the story of Mary is such, such an awesome story, isn't it? And, uh, and I know there's some people who have elevated Mary above uh, what she should be. Was she blessed? Was she great? Yes. But the Bible says that Mary was highly favored among women not above women, among women. That term highly favored in the Greek is only one more time in the New Testament. It's only in the Bible in the New Testament twice. Once when the angel said that about Mary. The second time was in Ephesians chapter one, verse six. Ephesians one, six says to the praise and the glory of his grace by which he made us, God made us. And how did he make us? By grace. So you're made. What well, God is talking to you and me. He says you have been made. How did you get made into something? You got made into something because of grace. You were made into something. What was you made into? By which he made us accepted in the beloved. The word accepted is the same Greek terminology as he said about Mary. So he says He said about you and me that we were highly Favored, yes, Just like Mary was highly favored, everybody that's born again has been highly favored. What does that mean, to be highly favored? Oh, well, you're just special. No, it means so much more than what you can grasp. Being favored, it's, just, it, it, it's when the king of all kings comes into any kind of platform, and he gets the respect and the honor just because of who he is. When the president of any nation comes in to any kind of room they stand, he gets recognition just because of the office that he's in. You and I have been placed in an office that is unlike any office on this planet. It's unlike anything that you could be placed in. You could be placed in the highest natural thing on this planet and it wouldn't even come close to what God has placed you and me today that we are highly favored in the spiritual realm above all principalities, above all powers, demons, and even angels. They even look at us with great respect and honor because of what God has made us. Hallelujah. So this is the thing. In 2018, I believe God wants to reveal to you and me what he has done in us so that he can work through us to change people around us. Man, that's a Facebook quote. And I'm not even into Facebook, let me tell you. God wants you and me to know that there is something that has happened on the inside of us. Because of what happened 2,000 years ago, Something has transpired, not just in the natural realm, but something has transpired in the supernatural realm. And in that domain, in the supernatural realm on the inside of us, God says, you need to know what happened on the inside of you and me. And when you start realizing what has happened on the inside of us, God says, now I can work through you because He, you have to know that because it's not you and me. When I even preach, it's not Mike up here, I mean some guy from Kentucky, dear Lord, help us all. No, it's somebody who has come inside of me and done something so that he can speak through me to change people around me. But the thing is, he's done that for all of us. If you're born again, if you're a believer in Jesus, he's done something in you because he wants to work through you. Outside of you. It's not about your ability. It's not about your intellect. It's not even about your behavior. It's not about how good you can be. It's about him. And what he has made you. So he can work through you. To change people around you. Luke chapter 15. Verse 1 and 2. Luke 15. 1 and 2. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and he's eating with them. In the whole chapter of Luke 15, you should really read that a couple times over maybe even. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus, he's just really hammering on the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious folk. In that culture, if you study that culture back in that day 2,000 years ago, (laughs) tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They weren't just looked down upon. They were like the rejects. Now, you have to see exactly what kind of people they were. They were Jews. The tax collectors were Jews, but they worked for the Roman government. The Romans hired them, paid them quite well. Most tax collectors were wealthy people, but what they would do is they brought shame upon their Jewish brothers and sisters by collecting money from them and even having extortion, taking more than what they even owed. And so the the Jewish people looked upon tax collectors as just hideous people, rejects, the scum of the earth that nobody wanted to be around. They were literally abomination to the Jewish nation. That's how the Jewish people looked upon them. And the Pharisees and scribes, they literally hated them i read one article about, from one theologian. Uh, I don't know if there's proof on this, but I, so I'm just prefacing it by this is what he said. And uh, he said this, that every Sabbath, the religious leaders, they would stand behind the pulpit, every church service, and they would literally read the names out loud of who the, the tax collectors were of their city. And proclaim... That they were the scum of the earth and that they could not be even forgiven. That's how bad of people they are. They can't even be forgiven. So they would read their name to bring shame to them because of the shame that they brought upon their nation. And then, of course, Pharisees and the scribes, they had to pay taxes just like everybody else. But they even refused to touch them. So when they came to collect them, they would throw the money at their feet. They refused to even touch them. And if by chance they were walking down the street and, and they weren't paying attention, if they brushed up against a tax collector, they would go home immediately, change clothes, and bathe because they touched the untouchable, the, the hideous, the sinner of all sinners, the abomination to their nation. Oh, It was just horrible how anybody could be a tax collector. And it's it is just so neat to see in verse 2, it says, and that Jesus ate with them. Again, you have to know a little bit about culture. The culture is that if I ate with someone, I'm in agreement with them, I'm bonding with them, I'm accepting them. It wasn't just like you ate with anybody. And it's like that way even today in some cultures, you know. You may go out to eat with some of your friends at work. or It means absolutely nothing. Back then, if you ate with somebody, everybody's going, oh. (laughs) You're agreeing with them. You're accepting them. You're bonding with them. And whatever they stood for when you ate with them, you became one with them during that time. And so it was a a put-down of all put-downs when the scribe says, your master is eating with tax collectors. How can you follow somebody like that? He's he's bonding himself. He's having a bonding time with the despicable, the abomination of all peoples. He's, He's eating with them. So, Jesus ate with tax collectors. He was saying to the tax collectors, your own people reject you. And let's be honest. They were probably feeling so guilty in themselves. They knew they were doing wrong. I'm sure they had had a hard time going to sleep at night. I'm sure that they probably felt like, you know, I'm a really terrible person. I'm shameful. I brought shame upon my family. But I put a lot of money in my pocket. So they would excuse themselves, but you know how terrible they had to feel about themselves to the point that they probably hated themselves. So what Jesus was saying to them, I'm gonna eat with you to show you that God's not rejecting you. To show you that... I can bond with you and love you and come to you right where you're at. Religion says you have to go to God. God always says, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. Jesus wanted to be identified with the untouchables. He wanted to be identified with people that or abomination to everybody else. He want to be identified with them. In the Luke chapter, that chapter of Luke chapter fifteen, you can read it. You ought to read it over and over again. This is a chapter that Jesus is declaring war on religion. <laughs> he tells story after story after story, and he's speaking to the religious people. I mean, he's literally slapping them upside the head with a story after story of what the kingdom, what God is all about. Religion has twisted who God is. It started with the the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, how this is how God is. He's the ultimate judge who is looking and pointing and judging you every day of your life. You have to live better. You have to do this. You have to do that. He's the judge of all judges. That's who God is. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm going to untwist that and I'm going to show you who God truly is. And so in Luke 15, he starts telling parables. While all the religious people are all gathered around, Jesus wanted to make sure to let them know that God is not the judge who you think he is. He's not even the person who you think he is. He's a god of love. He's a god of acceptance. So I have two questions for you. Who is God to you? A lot of people in America say, "Oh yeah, we all serve the same God." Well, that that's true, but what kind of God do you serve? Do you serve God who's the judge? Do you serve a God who's writing down a list of the wrongs you do and the rights that are they outweighing the rights and the goodness that you or, What What kind of God do you serve? Do you serve a God that may put sickness upon you? Do you serve a God that, that may cause you to have some financial difficulties just to keep you humble? What kind of God do you serve? Because once you start figuring out what kind of God you serve, you start figuring out who you are then. And that's the whole purpose of what Jesus wanted to do. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. So the whole plan of Jesus coming was not just for salvation, but was to reveal to mankind who God really is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is who God really is. He's the one who goes out to people and comes down to their level, and he's reaching out to wherever the lowest point. It's just like water. You pour water. Water has the nature in it to find the lowest point and go there. It's the same nature as God. He pours himself out to this planet, and He is seeking to the lowest point possible, and that's where you'll find Him. Not in the lofty, high places, not in the places where men want to be seen and heard. He will go into the cracks and the corners and the darkest point of people's life, of the self-destruction that people have made themselves, and that's where you'll find him. It's just so amazing how much he truly loves us. And in Luke chapter 15, he tells story after story He says a man has a lost sheep. He has a hundred. Ninety-nine are with him, but there's one that's missing. But he doesn't say the word missing. He says the word lost. You know, if I can't find my keys, my keys are missing. But if I have one of my grandkids that is lost, that's a whole different terminology. The world will stop. If I lose my keys, Okay, well, I got to I don't tell anybody. If I lose a grandkid, Danielle's not in here, is she? No, anyway, okay. But if I lose a grandkid, I mean, you go. All the stops are pulled out. Everybody, you know, from uh, the military to the police department. Everybody, you can make a contact with. You're going to call and say, "I've got. You got to." Oh my goodness! I've, it's 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 that. It's a big deal. So that word lost has that, that meaning behind it when Jesus tells about one of the sheep were lost. Hallelujah. And he says he does every, he'll leave the nine, he drops, the whole world stops turning and he goes after the one. Amen. He goes after the one. And then the Bible says when he finds him, he puts him, one translation says he wraps him around his neck. The one says he sets him on his shoulder. I believe he put that sheep around his neck. And it says that for a purpose. You know, you think you just pick it up, put it underneath your arm, or put a leash on it, drag it, whatever, you know. But no, he wraps it around his neck. This is, this is myology, Mike Davisology. This is my opinion. Because why did he put it around its neck? Well, I do know one thing about sheep, that they know the voice of their shepherd. I have a feeling that he put it as close as he possibly could to his voice. And he talked comfort and talked to that sheep to bring it all the way back to the fold. That's just the nature of our Father. And when you're hurting, he cares. When you feel out of place, he cares. When you need somebody and, and you can't turn to anybody because they maybe don't care or don't understand. Maybe they do care, but they just don't understand. There is somebody who does understand. He tells the story again of a lost coin. The whole world stops until she can find it. But then he tells the story about a, the prostitute. It's culture of that time that you have your feet washed and and even oil put on you. Jesus, the Messiah, comes to Simon Peter's house and and there he is, he's sitting at at the chair and his feet didn't get washed. But there was a woman who was not only a prostitute, but she was known as a prostitute. Obviously, she must have got around because everybody in the town knew that She's a prostitute. Maybe in how she dressed. Maybe it's just how she had been living for years, decades possibly. But everybody knew that she was a prostitute. It wasn't something secretively known. Everybody knew that. And so here's this prostitute who comes and kneels at the feet of Jesus. And with just a steady stream of tears. So many tears that it's produced enough that she has the ability to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. That's a lot of crying. And she washes and uses her hair to wipe his feet. She has expensive perfume. She sprays it and puts it on Jesus. And everybody in the house says this. If he was truly a prophet. He would have known. That this is a prostitute. And that she shouldn't. Even be allowed. To touch him. If he was a prophet. What is Jesus saying. To the Pharisees. And the religious people. He says Simon. If there is. Two men who had debts. One of them owed owed hundreds of thousands of dollars and one just owed a minimum maybe of a few hundred dollars. The banker forgave them both. Who do you think would love and be appreciative the most? It's pretty obvious. The one who owed the most. He said this woman who has much sin and guilt upon her life. She's forgiven today. One thing I want you to notice, she didn't even ask Jesus to forgive her. She didn't say, Would you forgive me? She didn't even ask. God gave her something that she didn't even know that she needed. She just knew that love was in the room. When love is in the room, things get accomplished. (laughs) She knew that he was her answer. She knew that he was the answer. And Jesus said, her sins being many are forgiven this day. And so they said, who is this that can forgive sins? The woman caught in adultery. Again, the religious people pulled her out, humiliated her, to shame her. The religious people always stood at a high position and they would look down to bring shame upon sinners. To let the whole world know that we are better than you. We have a tendency to do that with one another. We look of one another as a mirror. You're a mirror. You're a mirror. You're a mirror. And when we look into the mirror, you think, uh, I'm a little better than you. And you got your act together. You're a little better than me. But, you know, but for the most part, I'm, I'm not doing too bad. I'm, I'm better than most people. Most people have that mentality. But unfortunately, we're no better than anybody. And no matter how you rate yourself, whether it's higher than somebody or lower somebody, it's going to take you to a destination that you will not like. You can be like the Pharisees and smote your breasts and say, Thank you, God, that I'm forgiven and I'm not as bad as these. Blessings and the love of God is not something that just oozes out of God. It's who He is. Even the blessings of God. You don't seek the blessings of God when that's just what comes out of Him because that's His nature. It's just His nature. It's just an outflow when religious people would find a sinner, they brought shame upon them. And so when the woman caught in adultery, the whole uh, scenario of that is, we want to bring shame upon you to let the world know that we don't do that kind. We don't do what you do. And, and, and we're better than you. And you should be uh, humiliated. And, and we're just going to bring you out to shame you. And the, even the law backed them up and, and because the law would say if you're adulterer, then you should be stoned. The old covenant said that. So they thought, now we have him right where we want him. I'm always amazed that when the devil thinks he has us right where he wants us. All you have to do is look at Jesus. And there's not just a way of escape. There's a way to victory. I'll say it again. There's not just a way of an escape. There's a way to be victorious. And so that's just happened just like that. What do you say, Jesus? Moses and his law, the most respectable man, Moses, says she should be stoned. So they all pick up the rocks and say, just give us the word. Jesus turns to them and says, you're absolutely right. He who is without sin casts the first stone. One by one, from the eldest down to the youngest, because the oldest realized that I got lots of sins. They walk away. Jesus turns to the woman and says, where are your accusers? Is there anybody accusing you? None, my Lord. You realize Jesus could have picked up the rock and threw it. He had no sin. But the words come out of the Messiah neither do I condemn thee neither does god condemn John 3:16 says for god so loved the world but then John 3:17 says that he came not to condemn the world not to condemn it for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved Can I just give you a clue? Anytime you're condemning and causing people to be guilty, you're on the wrong side of the fence, my sweetheart. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't even come to bring condemnation to people, to make them feel like you need a Savior. You're such a horrible sinner. You're just a horrible person. You need a Savior. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not how he approached mankind. That's not how he approached mankind. The way that he approached is Luke chapter 15. He says, I'm going to show you the heart of God the Father. The religious people say, if you're a sinner, shame and guilt should be brought upon you. The true God. It's who I'm going to reveal to you. And the true God is, is the one who goes and has supper and lunch with a tax collector. The one who's an abomination to everybody. He's the one that will go to the lowliest of the lowliest place and contact and have a a personal one-on-one conversation with a prostitute. He's the one that will reach down to the darkest of the darkest people and touch their life and say, I love you. The whole purpose of Jesus coming, besides having bringing salvation to mankind, was to untwist everybody's thinking, to untwist people thinking that God is out to get you, and that if you mess up, he, it, bad things happen to people when they mess up and they don't live for God. Are there consequences to sin? Absolutely. There always are, always will be. That's why God hates sin because he knows the destruction that it brings to mankind. But that is not the reason why he can ever separate himself from... He does it. He became sin so that he can have a relationship with all of us. He took the penalty for sin not only 2,000 years ago, but he took the penalty of sin throughout all eternity. It never has to be paid for again. Sin will never have to be paid for again. It was stamped by the blood of Almighty God paid in full 2,000 years ago. There never has to be another payment for sin. That's good news for you and me. You know what that means? I don't have to pay for my sin. I do not have to pay for my sin. You don't have to pay for your sin. That's called grace. It's called the love of God. And time and time again, in Luke chapter 15, he, he tells the story, there was two sons in a wealthy family. And at that culture, at that time, the father didn't have to die to give his wealth and pass it on. So the younger whippersnapper, he just sit there and said, I'll take my inheritance now. The father didn't ridicule him. He said, okay. If you read that story, it says the father divided his total inheritance to his two sons, to both of his sons. Younger son, he took off, and he went to a Gentile nation. He left this Jewish culture and went to a Gentile nation. Now listen, Luke chapter 15, this is Jesus explaining and talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. So when he sit there and he said he went to a Gentile nation, they just went, oh, 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 just that's an abomination to his father, to to us as a nation, as Jews, going to the, oh, the uncircumcised. Why? But he doesn't stop there. Jesus, the awesome storyteller, he says he spent all of his money on righteous living. Prostitutes and gambling. Just living it up to where he had no money left. And the place had great famine. So he had no money, no way to make money. And so Jesus tells a story where he says, so he gets a job working with pigs. If you read Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus it says pigs are not just filthy animals. Under the law in the old covenant, pigs were abomination. Abomination. Pigs were, they they were just, they're, they're not just, no, they're not filthy animals. They're abomination to God. So Jesus picks the story or chooses to tell the story that this guy works with pigs. And so again, the Pharisees going, I mean, they're about ready to throw up, like he said the P word. (laughs) He's working with pigs, and not only is he working with them, he gets so poor and desperate, he lives with the pigs. He eats pig food. He sleeps with pigs. I think he probably smelled like a pig. He had pig juice in his pores. It gives a whole different meaning. This little piggy went to the market, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> so Jesus said this, this young man, he f- comes to his senses and think, you know what, my dad's rich. I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not even worthy to be a family member. I can go and live as a hired servant, and I'll know I get fed. I'll know I have a place to, to, to live. They have servants' quarters that weren't with the family home. It was off campus, so to speak, and you know, you're outside. But he says, I, I, at least I, I could do that and survive. And so he gets up from the pigsty and heads toward home. He doesn't, there's no, you know, showers or, or something for him to get cleaned up. He just heads all the way home. And so, so on his way home, he, he's going over this story over and over again. I'll just tell my dad that I'm not worthy to be his son. I'll just, I'll just say I've sinned before heaven and earth. And so he starts going home. And his father sees him afar off. Now again, the culture, Jewish culture, once you're past 30, it was, it was wrong for men to run. There's a reason. Because, you know, the, the cloak that they wore was kind of like a, you know... How can I say this? A robe. So you you can't run. So the way that men would run, if you were younger than 30, you hike that baby up. That's how you ran. And just like my legs would scare people, you know, they, they didn't want to do that to older men or people in public because it could be a scary sight. <laughs> My legs haven't seen the sun in, in many, many years. And so you would think you were seeing the glory. But anyway, they, this man was obviously older than 30. Everybody got a scary picture. You probably have to have therapy after this message. But anyway, this man, the father... It was a shameful thing to show your legs. I can understand that. He did not care. He came and he stooped to the shameful thing that everybody would look upon him with shame. He hiked up his little night-night or whatever you want to call it, and he took off running towards his son. What is Jesus saying? He's willing to bear shame to go after the one. So he meets his son, and he grabs him. And the Bible says, one translation said, he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. I don't know about you, but let's just get a picture of this. You've been living with pigs. You've been eating pig food. Not only doeth thou stinketh, but even thou breath stinketh horribly. And there is Linus, was it Linus and the peanuts that had this aura around him? Was it Linus? He, this guy had, Linus had nothing on this guy. Let me tell you, there was just a pig aroma. Around. I mean, what's that smell? Ah, oh, here he comes. So Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees and says, this is the way that God is like. And then he tells them part B of the story and basically saying, and this is what you're like. The second son who got the inheritance just like his fir- the first son. He's outside working hard in the fields. He comes and he says, what is this music in the party that I hear going on? One of the servants says, your younger brother, he came home. Your daddy gave him a robe, new shoes, a ring on his finger, and he killed a fatted calf, and music's playing. We're having a party. <laughs> the older son is ticked. He doesn't even go in. He stays outside, which, listen to me, the culture of that day, that is bringing shame upon his daddy, the way that he responded. So again, he's bringing shame upon his daddy. So he stays outside. Doesn't care what his daddy thinks. So his daddy hears that his son won't come in. So the second time, the father stoops and embraces shame and then he goes after his second son. So not only did he pour shame upon himself for the first son, he does it again for the second son. And he goes out to where his son is and says, what's going on? He says, Dad, I have been faithful. I've worked hard for you. I work from sunup to sundown. Never caused you any problems. Never caused you any pain. And yet, the son who you call your son has destroyed all of his money, lived with harlots and did the, I mean, the abominational of all abominations. This is your son. And he says, I have not done anything like that. Yet you've never given me a fatted calf or anything like that. What the son was saying was this. I've been up here all of these years serving you. And he was looking down of how much better a son he was than this one he was sending a message to the Pharisees he sending a message to the religious people of our day you can say that your self-righteousness and all of what you can do elevates you higher in the kingdom of God it does not Jesus sit there and he said everything I've had Any robe that you wanted, any jewelry that you wanted, any pair of shoes that you ever needed, any fatty calf that I have has always been yours. Why didn't the son know that? Do you think the father was hiding it from him? When he gave out the inheritance, he called both the sons in. The Bible says he gave it to them. The problem with the older son was this. It's the problem with the religious people today. He sat and he ate with his father, I'm sure, many times. Maybe every day. Maybe three times a day. He sat at the meal table with his father. Yet he had no relationship with his father. He didn't know the heart of his father. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, This is your relationship to God and it's wrong. The true relationship of God, the true heart of the Father is to go to the lowliest of the low, to reach out to anybody and everybody and embrace them and say, I died for you. I love you. And I'll go down as far as I have to to grab hold of you, to pull you and pick you up And bring you to a higher position. A higher place. That's been the heart of God all along. In Exodus. Chapter 3 verse 7 and 8. And the Lord said I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down. Everybody say come down. down. I have come down. To deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up. Everybody say bring them up. up. From the land. To a good and large land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and Hittites. The heart of God has always been this. Not just 2,000 years ago. And the reason why we celebrate Christmas. But the heart of God is always this. That he has come down for the sole purpose to bring us up. (laughs) Woo! Hallelujah! He has always been, he said, listen to me. Now you may think this is a strange statement, but I believe this. God would not want to be God if he had to be God without us. (laughs) Listen to me. You say, what did you just say? God did not want to stay God if he had to be God without us. That is why he brought Jesus to this planet so he would never be without us. God with us. The message of the angels is good news. God with us. Peace on earth. Emmanuel has now come to dwell among men. He did not want to stay. He could have stayed in heaven. Do you realize that? He didn't have to send Jesus. We could have been living under the law just like the children of Israel. Still living under the curse. Still living in a performance mentality trying to do good before him and always failing. Yet God said, I'm going to make a way where it seems like there's no way where man cannot get there and never could get there. We could never get there. So Jesus said, I will pour myself into a baby. And I'll put that baby, i put the seed inside of a woman. And she shall give birth to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So God poured himself into in the most vulnerable place that he could possibly put himself. A baby, which cannot look after himself, which cannot take care of himself, which is totally dependent upon its parents. God put himself in that position. Do you realize that? Why did he do that? Love. Love. Listen. You need to make this your prayer because I can teach you one love and I can do my best to explain love, but love cannot be taught. Love cannot be comprehended. Love has to be revealed because God's love is nothing like what we think love is. Oh, I really, really love you. I love my wife. I love people. I love our church. I love, but that's really not even coming close to what God loves us. It's not a natural thing. Why? Because the Bible says God is love. So if God is love, that means love is supernatural. It's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's something that our natural minds can't comprehend. Listen to me now. It cannot comprehend the love of God the length, the breadth, the depth, the height. It can't wrap its arms around it. It can't figure it out. It's beyond human knowledge. The love of God is beyond our human knowledge. And so if we're going to experience it, if we're going to, uh, and by the way, experience it means that love has become one with you and me. You don't contain love. You now have become love. Did you get that? You have now become, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. What does that mean? Now, I don't just contain love. I am. Love. Woo, I am just love going someplace to happen. I am just love. You know, and so what does the devil try to make you say? Man, I just don't have any patience. I just don't have any kindness. I just don't, it's just hard for me to be... Two things. You don't know your God and you don't know what He has done to you and made you. You can go out and do the biggest sin that you could possibly do. But God sees you as love. 100% purified to the bone. Love. So you and I have to get our spiritual eyes opened up who God is and who He has made you and me to be so that He can work through us supernaturally to change people's lives supernaturally let's stand